Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. For those of you not yet aware, today is World Teachers Day. That's, it's an official thing. I don't know who's celebrating it. Um, but I'm going to celebrate it right now, and we're going to approach it this way. I want you to consider for a moment uh, all of the teachers in your life and all of the people whom you teach or have taught. So who taught you to walk? And then who taught you to walk by faith? Who, who taught you to speak? And then who taught you to hear and appreciate God's still small voice? Who taught you to read and who taught you to read the Bible with understanding? Who taught you to genuinely comprehend? And then who taught you to apprehend what you comprehend in order that you could apply it to life in ways that advance the gospel? Our teachers come at many times and spaces in our lives, uh, the point in time where we need to learn something new in order that we might take the next step, or in some cases, uh, completely turn around. I mean, who taught us the reality of sin, and then who taught us the gospel? Who introduced us to the reality that God is not only good, but gracious, and that His grace is available to us and to all? So who have your teachers been along the way? formally and informally, intentionally or unintentionally. Like on this World Teachers Day, who is naming you right now on the list of, that's the person who taught me? And then who are you naming on your list? When you consider the value that's added to your life or the value that you've added to the life of another, on whose World Teachers Day list is your name being written down right now or lifted up in prayer in this moment? Who, had, who taught you along the way? And who have you taught along the way? Everything that we do and say and how we do it and how we say it is teaching someone else. I mean, we've said frequently, you know, you may be the only Bible that somebody else ever reads. The reality is people are learning positively or negatively, rightly or wrongly, who Christ is based on your and my representation of him to the world. We teach in the spirit of the teacher, or we actually teach people what he's not. So as disciples who are, con- who are commissioned to make disciples, let, let's right there, pause for a moment. If a disciple is a lifelong learner uh, following in the way of Christ, then we are always learning from the one who is the teacher. So as disciples who are commissioned to then make disciples, you can't teach someone to obey everything that Christ has commanded if you don't already know everything that Christ has commanded. You can only teach someone, you can only lead someone in the way of Christ as far as you've gone yourself. You just, it's just impossible to do otherwise. So today is our day as disciples who are commissioned to make disciples. Today is our day. 
Today is our day to say thank you to those who have taught us well, and today is our day to consider that we are, each and every one, teaching others right now, right now, about Christ. So in the 90 times that Jesus is addressed directly in the Gospels, 60 of those times he's called teacher. So on this World Teacher's Day, let's be sure we give the teacher his due, and then let's turn toward a world and teach them teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us. Junius Johnson up next. He is the author of Father of Lights. Hey, get ready for this. This is a lesson. This is a beautiful lesson in the theology of beauty. We'll be right back. Johnson is a scholar, he is a writer, he is a musician, and he is most recently the author of The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. Junius, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Let's uh, let's start the conversation with James 1, verse 17. So I would like for you to offer your translation of that verse, and then... Um, and then introduce us anew to the Father of Lights. Yeah, this is a verse that often people talk about when they talk about the, the unchangeability of God. And what's important to me coming into this verse is coming out of the context. What, what James is telling the disciples about is the fact that unlike the other gods that are being worshipped and that at the time that he's writing, we don't have a God whose power waxes and wanes with the movement of the heavenly bodies. We don't have a God whose power is going to be greater at one time of the month or than another. And so a lot of the words used in that passage are getting at this notion of astral celestial body movements. Um, and so rather than being a type of God who is bound to the movements of heavenly bodies, what we have is a God who is the father of those lights in the heavens, a God who is the creator of those lights. And so as such, he's not only not bound by their movements in terms of when he's available in your life or not, he actually is the one who determines those movements. This would have been a very powerful statement to um, a first century believer who is living in the midst of a people who worship a pantheon of gods who are just so changeable, right? The pain of to know where your star is in heaven to know whether your God is going to be available to answer your prayer or not. Um, but for me, that, that goes deeper. If light is, as it were, a way of talking about existence in general, if anything that is, insofar as it is, has light, then God is, of course, the author, the creator of all things. This is declared in Genesis 1. But the deeper implication of that is we don't come across anything beautiful in the world. We don't come across anything that shines with brilliance in the world without encountering something directly of God being placed in the world in that moment. Yeah, I just love that. So um, Junius's translation here of James 1, verse 17, every good giving and every perfect gift is from on high, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Again, that's James 1, verse 17. I think um, when we talk about the Father of lights, this is, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful introduction 
to the entire conversation of beauty, um, which is really what you're seeking to explore here um, in the theology of beauty, the father of lights. Um, Junius, uh, you described a statement. I'll let you tell us who Rebecca is if you want to. But you describe a statement that Rebecca once made that, quote, beauty is what reminds us of God. And then you say this is this was like an Alice in Wonderland like rabbit hole. Um, so where has following this statement, beauty is what reminds us of God, where has following that declaration taken you? It's taken me really everywhere I've ever gone intellectually. Uh, <laughs> there was obviously a need to dig deeper into what, is it, what does it mean to be reminded of God? How is that even possible? I mean, have I, have I had the kind of encounter with God that is sufficient to ground me being reminded of him in things? And what does it mean? What is the relationship of things to God then? You know, what must be true of something? If, if I'm finding this rock that I just picked up on the trail, beautiful, what has to be true of that rock for it to be able to remind me of God? Um, and it's kind of began, you know, in a sense, all of the study that I've done and all of the research that I've done in my life has been in one way or another following that path out, trying to figure out, well, if that's true, then that has to have deep implications for the relationships that have to exist between creaturely things, things that are created, and God. All right. Uh, let me ask a question here aside to uh, my producer, Paul Perot. Um, Paul, Virginia wants to know, do we have books? Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't. All right. Vir- yeah. So, Virginia, um, Baker uh, Baker Publishing is where you want to go. This is Baker Academic, and um, it's excellent. And so we want to uh, – I just I always like to tell people that, Junius, because there are some days that we have books to give away and some days we don't. And so – um, they will all be now in a in a flurry actively of adding me if I don't tell them right now. You're going to have to go get this one for yourself. It's The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. Junius Johnson, you can actually go to his website and, um, and check out things there as well. Um, Junius, um, what is beauty and what is a theology of beauty? Yeah, so, you know, beauty is one of these words that is, a, is one of these hard words to, to put uh, content to in our thinking. And a lot of times folks are, you know, we all know that we, we know beauty when we see it, and we all know that we want it. We're all attracted to it, but how do we describe what it is? And, and what I'm particularly concerned with is, you know, not just the question of is that thing or is that person beautiful or not? That's an interesting question, too. What, I, what I'm really curious about is what's happening theologically, right? What's going on in my soul? What's going on in God's economy in the world when I look at something and I find it beautiful? Mm. And that's a bit of an interesting question because I could be wrong. Uh, I think I am wrong a lot of the time. Most commonly, I see things that are beautiful and I don't recognize them to be beautiful. Mm. Mm. Um, but I can also see something that is um, that is that is not beautiful, something that's in fact ugly, and think that it's beautiful. And so that's that's important too. But what's what I really think fundamentally, what's going on in that moment when I look at something and I'm struck by the beauty of it, is that I'm really seeing it for the first time, or I'm really seeing it according to the way that it really is. And this is the key thing for me. Everything in its inner being that is as precisely the thing that it is as this fog or this tree or this human is an image of God. And so to see it rightly is to see it as a unique and unrepeatable image of God. That is what beauty is. It's just seeing the world rightly and recognizing the relationship that things stand in to God. And therefore, when I see something beautiful, I'm also learning something about God even if I can't put into words precisely what the thing is that I'm learning. I can't tell you what Frog's image about God specifically. 
I can't tell you what's so arresting about this particular fog as an image of God, but in finding it beautiful, that level, that, that memory of God that is implanted in my heart and by creating is activated. And I'm, uh, I'm coming into contact with the world as God truly made it. Yeah, it is why sometimes looking at something and beholding something, we weep without, uh, without right. any particular understanding of why. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation with Junius Johnson in just a moment. Um, we're going to talk about the relationship of beauty and glory or the relationship of beauty and holiness. I'm going to ask him um, how he responds when people say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We're going to have those conversations up next. Junius Johnson is my guest. The book is The Father of Lights. Continuing my conversation with Junius Johnson, he is a He's an academic beyond um, beyond that which uh, you would imagine would be conversational, and yet he is a delightful conversationalist. Uh, the Father of Lights is his latest book. It's a theology of beauty. Um, Junius, you are an artist yourself. You're a musician. Uh, I think that gives you a particular view of beauty, an understanding of it that uh, that those who are not artists may have a hard time um, accessing. So. Give us a sense of, you know, from your perspective, what's the relationship between beauty as this transcendental virtue and the beauty that we experience in nature or in art? Yeah. Uh, you know, in a word, it's, it's a relationship of participation. And this is mm. something that artists have really been aware of for a long time and have been trying to express more clearly um, since at least the 19th century, this, this, that they feel, you know, when we create something new, uh, or whether that be creating a new piece of, of a new poem or a new piece of visual art, composing a piece for the first time, all that on the one hand, or whether it be the performance of a piece. So as a musician, you know, when when I am in an orchestra and we are performing a Beethoven symphony, none of us is writing that symphony, and yet what we're creating in that moment is a performance of that symphony that is that has never happened before and that will never happen again. Uh, in those moments when we're sort of you know, in the throes of creating beauty in this artistic vein, there's very often, uh, really always, if we're paying attention, this sense of touching something greater, of touching something transcendent. And so for that reason, artists will often reach for religious language when they talk about the work that they do with their art. It's why we talk of inspiration. That's really not just a religious term, but specifically a Christian term, that the Holy Spirit is coming into you, right? Um and what, what we're recognizing in that moment is that there is a relationship between the particular beauty that we're engaged in the process of bringing into the world and that beauty of, of, above all beauties. That is the origin of beauty, the source of beauty, the standard of beauty that we Christians know to name as the Trinitarian God. And what that relationship is, is one of participation where we are reflecting God's beauty in the world. And so the beauty that we find in the world is in some sense not other than God's beauty, and yet it is also in some sense other than it because it is a creature. It isn't God, and that's what it looks like for us to image something eternal in the temporal world that we live in. All right, that, that is a, that's a really good answer to a complex question, and um, so thank you uh, for that. If you guys missed that, that's one of those where you need to go back on the podcast and listen to it again. Um, Junius, that, um, th that's, 
Yeah, that's clippable. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. How do you respond when somebody says that um, beauty is not objective? It's in the eye of the beholder. If I were being flippant, I would say, of course yeah. it is, and of course it isn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes um, and yes. It, it, mm-hmm. This is really a central idea that I would hope that people come away from the book with, because I think that it helps with a lot of the struggles that we have, not only with determining uh, questions of art, is it art, is it not art, is it good art, is it bad art, right? But also with just the, the sort of daily problem of beauty, which I can maybe express in this way, right? If, if I find something beautiful and you don't, um, it's not the same thing as if I find something um, pleasant and you don't, right? If I, if I like this, I think it's a really nice salad and you think it, you don't like it at all because you don't like tomatoes for some reason, then I typically think, okay, that's weird and I let it go. Um, but if I find something beautiful and you say, no, that's not beautiful at all, you're likely to get a strong response from me. Um, you're likely to, I'm likely to argue with you and say, well, I mean, come on, like you, you know, are you looking at it? Are you really seeing this thing? Look at this, look at this. Isn't it beautiful? Um, anyone who's ever been around someone who has recently fallen in love knows this, right? They're very concerned that you understand the person that they're in love with is the most beautiful person that has ever been. Um, why is that? Why do we feel so, um, well, evangelical about the question of beauty, about things that we find beautiful? Why do we conversely get so offended when someone calls something that we think is ugly, beautiful. I think the reason for that is because we are aware that whatever, although there are questions of taste, there are questions of my experience versus your experience, there's also a fact of the matter that thing is beautiful or not. What I what I could have fell into with this understanding of beauty as being that which reminds us of God is that what grounds this is the notion that when you call something beautiful, you're saying this thing is in some significant way like God. And to get that wrong, to, to say that something that images God doesn't image God is pretty frustrating. But also to say that something that is in no way like God, maybe sin, is beautiful, is to actually say untrue things about the divine nature in ways that are frankly blasphemous. And blasphemy does tend to draw a rather strong reaction from people. So I think what we're getting in that moment is the recognition that there is an objective dimension to this. This thing simply is beautiful. And yet, whether whether I see it as beautiful or not, and even more interestingly, the particular way that I see it to be beautiful, that's going to have a lot to do with what's going on in my soul, with whether I have learned to recognize God well or not, with whether my idea of God is good or not. Even if I have a very, very good understanding of God, and, I, and that's not being hindered in some way by my own sinfulness, which is not something we really ever experience in this world, but even in a world apart from sin, whether before the fall or after the restoration, I'm not going to see beauty the same way that you do, because I'm created with a particular way of looking at the world. And that's going to give me a unique way of taking up the beauty of things, so that as I talk to you about the very same thing that we both find beautiful, you're going to understand new things about its beauty from me, and I'm going to understand new things from you. So in that sense, yes, there is something about the eye of the beholder that's very, very important. But the question of beauty isn't just, is it objective or is it subjective? It's rather what I call a subjective objectivity. It's an objectivity that is subjectively appropriated, but that is powerful enough to control to some extent the way that we can take it up. Junius Johnson is my guest. The book is The Father of Lights. Um, I know we're going to run this segment a couple of minutes long, but I want to hear Junius's answer to this question. 
Um, Junius, there is um, the shadows matter as much as the light when we're talking about mm. beauty. Um, so um, let us have a conversation here briefly about the beauty of the cross. How can that be? Yeah, that is one of the things that folks really struggle with. And, and, and there's a concern out there that I'm very sensitive to, which is we don't want to get into talking about the beauty of suffering and the beauty of the cross. And by doing so, inadvertently give power to suffering, inadvertently excuse suffering, right? And say, well, it's okay that these bad things happen. It's good that these bad things happen because. Um, and yet, on the other hand, we can't shy away from talking about beauty in such moments, really for two reasons. One is if if suffering and pain are really at a place where, the, where evil is at work in the world, we know that our God is more powerful than evil and that evil won't get the last word. And so it shouldn't be scandalous to us that God can bring good out of evil. It would rather be scandalous if you were not able to, because that would mean that good is more, that evil is more powerful than good. But there's a deeper reason why I think we have to be willing to talk about the beauty of something like the cross. And that is because that is, this is of all places, of all places, the place where we would not expect to be able to find beauty, not just an ancient torture uh, and murder device, but in fact, the place where God himself goes to die. This is a place where we would not expect to find beauty. But the logic of the resurrection is that even in the place where it seems that it is impossible that there be beauty, maybe even precisely in that place, God brings beauty forth. It is the greatest declaration of God's identity as the creator of beauty, as a defender and champion of beauty. Um, and it is the greatest indication we have of the power of the beauty of God and the beauty of holiness to overcome the world. Amen. Junius Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll come back. You're just a delight to talk with. The book is The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. You can find Junius at JuniusJohnson.com. Um, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just a delight. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to go around the world with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine and Bring us all up to date on what's happening around the world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. Do your days feel like a hike on an Appalachian trail in winter? A struggle to place one foot in front of the other? If so, I urge you, friend, hang on. Hang on. Don't give up. Help us here. It may not come in the manner you requested or as quickly as you desire, but it will come. Assume that something good is going to happen. The door of tomorrow is unlocked from the inside. Just turn the knob and step out. The divine artist isn't finished. The earth is his studio. Every person on earth is one of his projects. Every event on earth is a part of his great mural. He is not finished. The scripture says in Philippians 1, God began doing a good work in you, and I'm sure he will continue it until it is finished when Jesus Christ comes again. Remember, friends, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Thanks very much, Carmen. Always fun to be on your program. Well, thank you. So you you all had the experience of Boris Johnson contracting COVID-19 and being hospitalized. We are now in that same circumstance here in the United States, wondering, you know, what your read is in terms of how world leaders are reacting to President Trump's COVID diagnosis. 
Well, on the whole, most of them have come up with sympathetic responses. In fact, I would say almost everybody. I haven't seen any particular animus directed towards the president from anybody, but no doubt there will be some people who are part of that brigade. But everybody, I think, in general wants to see the president recover, and they certainly don't want any ill to befall his wife. So I think most people are looking with great expectancy on his treatment. All right. And then we have Alexei Nalvani giving his first interview. Um, first of all, remind us who Alexei Nalvani is. Um, remind us about his relationship with Russia um, and then why this, uh, you know, why his ability to now be able to speak is so important. Well, Nalvani has been the figurehead of the opposition in Russia under Mr. Putin and has been a a thorn in the side of Putin's government and, in fact, has been prevented from bringing candidates to uh, legislative elections by all kinds of restrictions. And he was poisoned after attending an opposition rally in Siberia. He was poisoned on the plane flying back to Moscow. He collapsed on the aircraft. He was given emergency treatment in a local Siberian hospital, uh, but then he was flown out to Germany because his supporters did not believe that he was going to get adequate treatment in Russia. When he got to Germany, the German doctors confirmed that they had found traces of Novichok, the nerve agent poison. Uh, in his in his body, and so they confirmed that he had in fact been poisoned. Now, amazingly, Navalny has said that he's determined to go back to Russia. He doesn't want to be a martyr to Mr. Putin or anybody else, and so he, I think, qualifies as one of the most courageous opposition figures in the world today knowing that he's going back to a country that basically has its, a, a target sign on his back. So we have to pray that he'll survive these, these um, restrictions on him. So you and I uh, talked last week about the um, what was then a, I don't know, almost neighborhood-level uh, disruption in terms of Armenia and Azerbaijan, it is now at least a regional conflict. And um, there are people protesting in Los Angeles uh, here in the United States of America. They uh, they filled a freeway last night. They shut down Hollywood Boulevard uh, and Highland, which is a major intersection in in Los Angeles. Uh, they were waving Armenian flags and they are interested in getting media attention on this conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Bring us up to date, as it certainly looks like this local issue is becoming at least regional and possibly larger than that. Well, there were hostilities that broke out in the Armenian ethnic 
enclave within Azerbaijan in the 1990s. A ceasefire was uh, put into place, and so far that seems to have held, but recently the Turks have apparently been introducing troops into the area and have provided uh, military equipment to the Azerbaijanis. And uh, I have been to, uh, to Azerbaijan, and I've been to the city of Baku, and the sentiments are very strong against the Armenians. So there's a lot of ethnic animosity that's built up there for decades and even centuries. And so I don't think this conflict is going to be resolved without major participation of big players in the area, including Russia itself. Which definitely uh, creates the possibility of one of those places where people would have what we call a proxy war. And we certainly don't want to see this um, devolve into that kind of uh, that kind of conflict. So we'll keep this one on the radar. Um, um, yeah. We got to take a brief break, but when we come back, David, let's uh, let's turn the globe and focus in on developments in Belarus. That's up next here on yeah. Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. Uh, David, let's pivot our attention to Belarus. Uh, give us an update there. Well, Belarus has been in turmoil for several weeks since the election of Alexei, I'm sorry, of, um, of the president was announced for, he's been in office for about, President Lukashenko has been in office for a quarter of a century. And many people in Belarus claimed that his election had been manipulated and uh, incorrectly judged by the officials responsible for it. As a result, there have been widespread demonstrations almost on a daily basis in Belarus. And these demonstrations have been methodically put down by security forces who have not only suppressed demonstrators from protesting on the streets, but have actually beaten and tortured people that they have taken into custody. So there's a great deal of anger and the dispute in Belarus has implications quite serious for Russia because many people feel that Russia has supported Belarus and the regime in suppressing these demonstrations. And Russia itself has obvious problems with the opposition in that it is treated a main opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, with great uh, punitive measures. So people are really waiting to see if Russia wades in uh, to support Lukashenko in keeping him in office. So we'll have to see whether they in fact do that or are 
deterred by threats of retaliation from other countries, particularly the EU. Well, and I think that the conversation that sort of sews the thread or reveals the thread or pulls the thread between all three of these stories, the Navalny story, the story related to Armenia and Azerbaijan, the story here in Belarus, there's a Russia storyline, but there's also, um, you know, there's a Turkey storyline and there's an EU relationship storyline as well. So when you and I have these conversations, I'm hoping that our listeners are making some of those connections and saying, hey, we know that, um, you know, Turkey is in a pretty fragile relationship now with uh, with NATO. And so the EU may not have uh, appetite to um, ruffle Turkey's feathers, let's say, um, uh, by saying, hey, you guys ought not take such an aggressive position here in in the situation in Armenia, you know, in Azerbaijan with the Armenians or in Belarus. But at this point, nobody seems to be telling uh, Erdogan to back down at all. And he seems to be um, really fomenting the aggression in both of these places. Yes, there's no doubt about that. Turkey has been um, vociferously on Azerbaijan's side since the dispute in the 1990s. And obviously, they want to see Lukashenko succeed in staying in uh, sorry, not Lukashenko. They want to see Azerbaijan prevail in this dispute with Armenia and are doing a lot of things in a military way to enable Azerbaijan to do just that. And that's really serious for their relations with the EU. Yeah. And then in Belarus, they want to see, as you started to say, Lukashenko uh, retain power there as well and suppress um, any any dissidents. All right. Let's uh, let's pivot. um, Let's pivot toward Thailand. What do we need to know about developments there? Well, Thailand, of course, has been roiled by opposition disputes. Interestingly enough, against the monarchy itself. Now, The fascinating thing about Thailand is that for decades, the Thais were ardently pro-monarchy and not in the slightest bit interested in any sort of Republican sentiment. But these precise sentiments to change the monarchy to some kind of constitutional system, which would enable Republican activists to have a position of power. These have accelerated, uh, escalated in the last few months. So there's been great unrest, which the regime has been determinately cracking down on because they don't want this to get out of hand and to threaten the the, uh, leadership of the government that's allied with the monarchy. Yeah, this is one of those. I think the situation in Thailand uh, makes a really fascinating worldview study um, because there just aren't very many places where we genuinely talk about monarchy anymore. Um, There's also a a military junta involved in all of this. There's a pro-democracy movement that has behind it, um, you know, a young man who is sort of heir to the largest auto parts manufacturer in the whole country. Um, And, you know, and he's got this 
really, really youthful pro-democracy following. Um, I, I think it's one of those situations where we could we could see a pivot in, you know, in our time, um, you know, likened unto the pivots that monarchies made to democracies in other places in the world now hundreds of years ago. Um, but Thailand may be now approaching that kind of transition. And I think we guess I guess we would all hope that it would be uh, a nonviolent transition and it wouldn't require a you know, genuine revolution in the way we tend to think of it. That's right. I mean, there are other countries that have made a successful um, evolution from monarchy or absolute uh, government tyranny to a more democratic uh, mode, and several of those countries exist in Asia. So the the precedent for a peaceful evolution is already there. It's just we have to hope that the ties will really come to this point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, am I, am I right in thinking that when we think of the, uh, the monarchy in Thailand, I mean, we're, we're talking about something that is uh, like almost 800 years old. I mean, we're, we're talking about a form of governance in a place that is um, genuine, genuinely centuries long, where they actually consider the head of state to also like basically be a god, um, so I, well, I just it's one of those it's definitely one of those uh, places to watch in terms of worldview. Well, that's true. And I remember when I was covering in the 1970s, the return of Thais who'd been captured by the North Vietnamese uh, to Thailand. Uh, the exchange of prisoners meant that communist uh, Laotians were released into North Vietnamese hands, and the ties were released back to Thailand. The contrast between the jubilation of the ties in being able to return to their monarchy and the downright depressed attitude of the North Vietnamese, sorry, of the Laotian prisoners returning to North, uh, North Vietnamese uh, rule was astonishing that the Thais were absolutely jubilant in their enthusiasm for the monarchy. So if that attitude is changing in Thailand, it marks a decisive change in attitudes towards monarchy throughout East Asia. Totally fascinating. All right, David, you and I are going to have to leave it right there. We'll look forward to a Brexit update next week. It's like the story that keeps on giving um, and then we do have developments uh, in Israel and Lebanon as natural gas might be a way um, to take some of the heat out of uh, a very historical enmity. So great, great um, worldview storylines out there for us to be paying attention to today. David Aikman, thank you so much for bringing your wisdom to bear on all these conversations. Carmen, thank you for the privilege of being on your program. Well, thank you. Have a great week. We'll be right back. All right, on this World Teachers Day, let me encourage you to have your own little thankathon. So um, let's be thanking Jesus Christ, who is, you know, he is the one who has taught us more about the Father uh, than anyone else in all of human history. He is the rabbi at whose feet we sit. And so let us be sure to thank him today. Let us uh, thank God for the inspiration of his Holy Spirit that enables us to know him more and more.
Um, and then let's turn, you know, in in a in a significant way to the teachers of this world and this life. So in my thankathon, in my World Teachers Day thankathon, I might have Miss Chestnut, Miss Kuhn, Miss Bickle, Miss Mabry, all uh, those who taught me when I was in elementary school. I might then turn to Coach Fife and Kathy Connor, and then I might turn to Dr. Miller, on and on and on. Who would be in your World Teachers Day thankathon? Why don't you spend some time today being sure that the people who have poured into you uh, know that they're appreciated? And then um, why don't you consider what the Great Commission means today in terms of actually teaching other people not only to know but to obey everything Christ has commanded us? Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.